It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is an NEA jazz master and Grammy-nominated saxophonist and jazz educator, Dave Liebman. Liebman's latest album release is on the Dot Time Records label, and it's titled Selflessness, which is a tribute to John Coltrane and showcases nine newly arranged Coltrane classics. Dave, thanks for joining us today on All That's Jazz. Thank you. Nice to meet you here. Let me begin our conversation by uh, saying to you that you've been quoted as saying that I've been chasing the train for 60 plus years, and I can honestly say that he was greatly responsible for who I am and who I wish to be. So did you finally catch the train, Dave, and has your wish come true with this release? Well, it's a, just a drop in the bucket, so to say. You know, he has his uh, his work, his oeuvre, is so tremendous that it'll take a lot more than the twelve years allotted to him. Because you know, he came on the scene in '55 with Miles, and uh, he passed away twelve years later. Somebody that of that magnitude, that much product, and he was there, but he was he was at the right man at the right time musically. I don't think anybody could really ever capture him. You know, copy parts of him. And mostly for me, it's the spiritual depth and humanity that I heard the first time I heard him when I was 15 years old. His message was far and wide and uh, it was ecumenical. And uh, he didn't talk much. He was quiet. He acted by his works. That's, uh, that's how you find culture. You know, you've been impacted and influenced greatly by him. In fact, uh, you've been known to make it clear that he was truly one of your biggest uh, mentors and influencers in your life and your career and your music. The first night I saw him was in Birdland in 62. What I heard that night was anything. I was 15 years old. I mean, that I appreciated it was a, it was a nice gift. But... Uh, there was something going on, and I, I say behind the curtain. You know, I was brought up in a very, you know, straight ahead, middle class Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York family. And, uh, you know, my parents were teachers, and my brother was even my brother was a teacher for a while. School, New York City school system. So what you see is what you get in that lifestyle. Uh, and I'm not being negative, I'm just being descriptive. But uh, I left there, and of course, not that night. I was talking about an epiphany it can happen over a length of time. First of all, I couldn't believe that he was playing this instrument, or I, that I was playing this instrument, called the tenor saxophone. 
I said, that can't be the same instrument that I have home in Brooklyn under my bed that I take out once, once a day for an hour to practice. So that was already something deep. And the way he played, I mean, I didn't get it. I mean, it was, sounded like he was missing notes. Uh, it sounded like he was on the wrong page, so to say. And of course, he, he wasn't, I was, of course, you know. And uh, so in this case, curiosity uh, reigned pretty strong in my, my background. You know, if you see something you'd like and you think it's something that interests you, go deeper into it because then it'll open up. That was the beginning of Coltrane. And of course, that led to jazz, period. Jazz from left to right. So when I say he had a lot, a lot to do with my lifestyle, with my life, it was uh, definitely uh, in the arts and in general in the, and in the music that I found uh, an amazing resource that still, still is with me. Well, he certainly didn't have you make the decision in your life to start playing the saxophone because I believe you had already started that uh, in your younger years. You saw him for the first time when you were 15, but when did you start playing saxophone? Well, my mother was very smart. You know, in those days, we didn't have the radio. Well, we had radio, TV, but we didn't have all the distractions we have now. So, you know, when the night would come and the family would be pretty much in the living room, listening to music, watching television, something like that, you uh, had either sports, and that wasn't so big in a, in a city environment. Uh, it could be, but it wasn't. And you had music. And she said to me, she said, would you like to play an instrument? And I said, I was in love with rock and roll. Early rock and roll. I mean, I could tell you as much about that as I could about Coltrane. And I said, uh, you know, I want to play the saxophone. It's called, you know, my mother. It's a tenor saxophone. And uh, she said, well, I'll make a deal with you. You take at least, up to you if you want to do more, but at least two years of piano. And then you can choose the instrument of your choice. I thought that was... You know, at the time, I thought, that's what a drag. I mean, why is she, why is she holding my feet to the coals, you know? It was uh, a deal that I said was, you know, kind of not what I wanted to do. But sure enough, probably the best decision musically I ever made was to learn piano first, meaning before <laughs> saxophone, before trumpet, before drums, etc. Because it's, it's the world of music, certainly Western music, let's put it that way. And uh, through the piano, you really have a chance to learn everything there is about Western music. She actually struck a good bargain. Good deal with me. So when you finally saw Coltrane, what was it that pushed you over the edge toward him and certainly jazz? There seemed to be an honesty of uh, running around the street, you know, a very uh, sincere humility, all positive aspects of personality and, you know, groups People, this, this so-and-so exhibit this so-and-so. But what I saw was just honesty and uh, beauty and sharing. I mean, I didn't understand everything, but I, you know, I came in, to, you know, when he was already in 1962, 61, and I was ready for it. It was something I was ready for, and I didn't know it. But then I started to pursue it. And then, you know, then you get into my bio, which I studied with Lenny Tristano, studied with Charles Lloyd. Uh, I had a you know, piano train, I had saxophone training. I did pretty good on Saturday mornings and afternoons in Brooklyn at a neighborhood music school. I think that's what it was, Al. It was just this feeling of life and of beauty. And uh, not that I had not beauty, but I had polio as a kid. And, uh, there were, you know, some hard times, obviously. Uh, this was more than just a res respite. It was uh, a relief to find something that would be open, the book would be open and never close. 
Well, certainly uh, it impacted you deeply in your life and, and you moved on and you, I guess uh, if I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, not only emulated him and his music uh, in your performance uh, and in your compositions, but uh, you paid a lot of homage to him in so many different intervals of your career. And the newest release, Selflessness, is not your first homage to him. You, you've had a number of other releases. You can't go away from the light. The light keeps bringing you in. It's the uh, first line of spirituality and spiritual pursuits. Once you see the light, you can't leave it. I don't know if it was that heavy that I'm describing, but there, was, there seemed to be a resource there that could go on. And it's going on 50 years later. It's 50, 60 years later with this new one. Uh, it seemed like there was a lot to learn and a lot that could be done. It just seemed that way at a young age. And I wasn't about to you know, go out and play basketball. I wasn't interested in mathematics, et cetera, et cetera. This was fit to build music. You kind of had a different personality. You were different. You had something to shine outside of other people, to be in a crowd, you know, to socialize and so You know, I had a lot of side purposes, so to say. But in the end, it was the message of train of honesty and humility. Mm -hmm. Did you get to ever spend much time with him? No, I was around him for a few minutes at the Village Vanguard. He was uh, hanging out in the hallway between shows. And there were a couple of guys there, three or four guys. And I figured, uh, oh, this is pretty close to the master. I might as well see it through. And uh, he, um, somebody asked him, and about you know, three, again, three or four guys around him. Somebody asked him, how's it going tonight, John? Meaning musically, I assume. And he said, you know, this is now when he was playing with his wife you know, right now. He said, well, it goes better at home than it does on the bandstand. And I just stood there for, for a minute. And then I knew, I didn't know, but I had been frequenting the lofts, it seemed, in Manhattan. And one of the people who I met at one of these loft scenes was Pharaoh Saunders. And he said, you play flute, right? It's amazing. He looked, he looked at me and he said, you know, he, he remembered me. I said, yeah, I tried to. He said, show us something. Huh. <laughs> and he handed me a C flute, you know, like that. And I don't know what the hell I did, but I did something enough to be able to stay there for a few more minutes and be in the presence of culture. Not only was he a complex man, but he, he, he was also a beautifully gifted man, and the music that he composed is absolutely stunning. It's unbelievable that somebody with such a ferocious body of music and the way they played live was unbelievable, could have a, around him compositions that were extremely tonal as compared to non-tonal. Extremely lyrical. I mean, if another artist had done it, you'd say, wow, what a beautiful player, what a, a beautiful side to this man, and so forth. But here, after hearing him play like a, a duet with Elvin Jones for 45 or 50 minutes, and then go into Naima, to use that as an example, and then heat Naima up to where it was completely different from the original, it was remarkable that he could do that with this body of music. And that he could turn it from lyrical to chaotic. Because late train, mm -hmm. the, what we refer to as late train, is 60, 65, 6 into 67. Mm -hmm. And that was a stage where his wife was playing Alice, Alice Coltrane, Pharaoh Saunders, still Jimmy Garrison, drummer Rashid Ali, no Elvin Jones. Incredible that uh, he made that move. And uh, this was his group for the last year or two. And uh, it was a remarkable how he went from my favorite things to meditations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Incredible uh, voyage. 
So you pay tribute to him in this latest release called Selflessness, uh, and your band is called Expansions. Tell us about the ensemble and the personnel. Well, the personnel is uh, Bobby Avey, a keyboard, Tony Marino on my long-term basis, uh, and uh, Alex Ritz, and for the recording, uh, another horn player, Matt Bashlish. I had been with, with Quest in the 80s, into the early 90s. And it got to a place where we just couldn't do any more. At least I couldn't do any more creatively and uh, needed to uh, do something else. And what I wanted to do was what experience what the younger guys were experiencing with the change of music. I mean, the jazz, every, you could almost make a case that every 10 years, the style, if, if there was a predominant style, it changed. It might be linked in Coltrane's case to, to, to past certain stages, but it, it meant that uh, you could see the evolution and I wanted to not be left out of the party because this next generation were even more abstract than our generation. And we, you know, were, when I say we, as you know, the musicians of the 60s and 70s, Fusion, the, the guys that are now well-known, you could make a straight line from one style to another with the influences that it became. I want, as I said, I don't want to be left out of the party. For example, there's a lot of emphasis on what we call odd meter. Instead of the usual 4-4, four, four, it becomes 9-4 or 10-4, whatever, you know, technical mm-hmm. stuff. But uh, that was something that I wasn't that good at. I was not, it wasn't my vocabulary. It was me jumping into another, you know, uh, another group of younger musicians. So that's what the idea was behind expansions and why I call it expansions was because for me it was, as I just described, an expansion of who I was musically. And these four other musicians were people that played the new style. So that's how I got the group. I got the group name. And this particular recording was done a few years ago. And I, yeah, well, it says 2021, but that's when it was released. I think this is 2018. And uh, I didn't have a label, but I knew that, you know, I would be able to get it with a company short, easy, easy enough over a few years. And that's how it happened. Um, and Lydia has involvement with this label. She works with that, that label. She mentioned it to these folks. And said, uh, you know, my dad has some stuff, blah, blah, blah. And uh, next thing I knew, we had a record deal. <laughs> and with Music by Coltrane on his 95th birthday. Wow. Which will be the September 23rd. There's a lot of timing involved here, which is just fortuitous timing for me. I love the title of it, Selflessness. Of course, that's a Coltrane tune. But it also, I think, has special meaning because selflessness is defined as being concerned for more of the needs and wishes of others than yourself. Is that a reflection, do you think, of not only Coltrane, but maybe yourself? Well, I wouldn't be pretentious, too pretentious about my, my situation in this respect. But Coltrane, you know, says in his bio, in 1957, he stopped drugs and he cleaned his act up, which uh, probably was true. I was there, again, during that period. He seemed to take, you know, it was all about business, and you know, he was very quiet, as I said. And he did practice in between sets. It's, it's rumored that he did, and he did, uh, depending on the gig and the night and so forth. But, you know, once the set was finished, you would uh, return to your Coca-Cola or whatever I was drinking, and you'd hear the horn in the background. And I, the first time I had that, that to happen, I was with a friend, and I said, what's he doing? Warming up, getting a new read, what's happening? And it sounded like he was practicing, and he was. He was found a little niche maybe in the bathroom or something like that oh. and he proceeded to to keep going in that respect so uh, he was a voracious pr- 
practice him. There's no question about it. And a lot of what he accomplished musically uh, could only have been done with great practice. You know, sometimes there are things that you just can't, you just can't do any shortcuts. I mean, some things you can, but uh, playing and playing in that style, you can't shortcut it. It's a, it's a process and it has to be seen as, as one. Uh, All right. And uh, Reggie, last thing I'll say is Reggie Workman, the great bassist, he said to me, he said, if, if, if Train wasn't practicing, he was sleeping. <laughs> so hmm. it gives you a little idea of the magnitude of his, you know, his contribution. That's certainly uh, passion and devotion to your art, and uh, it speaks loudly. And of course, I, I mentioned Love Supreme. I mean, the, the poem, the uh, last tune, the poem, and the way it's so ecumenical. It's such a prayer for, it's a prayer for peace and for love and for beauty and all that stuff. Well, the things I identified when I saw them the first time, and uh, that became emblematic of his belief. The, the poem at the end of Love Supreme. Now they just found new new copy. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see that very soon. And let, I think they're going to release it in mid October. So we'll see now about that because he's never played Love Supreme. He played Love Supreme live in Paris, uh, not Paris, in, in Antibes, and uh, of course the recording session in December '64. But he never played it in the club. So everybody's excited to hear what kind of thing this is going to be. That's waiting for everybody. To- Wonderful. So with the nine tracks that are on this particular release of Selflessness, what was the motivation behind it or the inspiration for you to choose those nine selections? Well, some because they have not been done a lot, at least not that I know. For example, uh, Peace on Earth. something he played commonly. He played that in the Japan concert. He played it, I mean, maybe two nights. I don't know if somebody can correct me on that. Uh, but that was a, a different one. Uh, Selflessness, the title. thing about it a certain thing but very intense again trained the end is most intense as well as quiet mixing the two together um, compassion 
comes from the meditation suite, which in my opinion is probably one of the great works of the century. sweet and compassion was one of the parts and then favorite things of course i have a history of favorite things i got a grammy nomination for my solo on a recording called thank you john in 1997 so that had a, a little bit of a ring to it and also that favorite things was another thing that happened that first night he went into this tune i didn't know what it was and uh, i said oh what's this to my, my girlfriend at the time she said Oh, she said, uh, that's from a Broadway show. I said, what? What are you talking about? This is John Coltrane. They don't play that stuff, you know? She said, no, it's from Sound of Music, and it's one of my favorite things, and uh, you should know it, David. chastised, but I made it up by the fact that I play it every night when I can, at least in when we do the Coltrane program. It's amazing what he did with this tune. It's remarkable, because even if it wasn't special because of who wrote it and Oscar Hammerstein and all that stuff, it was like uh, he treated it from the time he made the first recording that's born on the Atlantic Way at Soprano. And then again in 1963, a concert in Newport, uh, the Newport Jazz Festival with Roy Haynes, Elvin wasn't there at the time. And then 1966, called Live at the Village Vanguard, again, the tune metamorphosed from one thing to another over that six-year period. And he's played that tune every night, at least every night I heard it. I once asked Elvin, I said, Elvin, how many times have you played my favorite things? He said, well, you know, I was with John for six years, and we played it every night. Sometimes we played it twice a night. He said, you tell me how many times. So I did a quick calculation. Could it be 1,200 to 1,500 times they played this tune? I think it was, because when I heard him, and Elvin to finish the conversation. Again, he got close. We were in a train in Italy. He got close to me and put his face in my face and said, but you know, Dave, we played it like we wouldn't be there tomorrow. But he backed up and he said, you know what I'm talking about? I said, yes, sir. And that's how it should be. And I'll tell you, you, you played it like uh, there is no tomorrow as well on this release. Great. And there's another one on here I didn't mention, which is even more obviously creative and, and lyrical. And that's Dear Lord, just the title. Dear Lord, beautifully, the whole group plays so beautifully, it's like, it, there's like the, not a, a feather has been rustled. Mm-hmm. 
it's a poetic, you know. So, so when you look at it, I haven't done this, but peace on earth, selflessness, dear Lord, there are three. Compassion could be called that. Four, three to four, what are called late train pieces, and very melodic. Not the usual, not like uh, one up, one down, uh, lazy bird. That's for bebop. Ole bebop. Yeah, I mean that, that's those those tunes. Uh, I think what makes this record in my, for me uh, to enjoy is the beautiful lyrical tunes interspersed with the very intense ones. Well, you shared the wealth with uh, some of your band, and uh, each of you had their own spin on of each of these nine tracks, and it, it was it was great to hear people's take on it, uh, and you allowed that to happen, and that's great. No, I am a, a democratic band leader, <laughs> controlled democracy. <laughs> I'll let you have it, but if you don't go if you don't go in the right direction, I'll let you know. Well, there you go. Uh, and and you are such a phenomenal artist, uh, and and you maintain and preserve the purity and passion of each of these tracks. Uh, you you do him justice. Thank you, sir. I appreciate. It. Well, what do you think John Coltrane would say if he could hear this album? Uh, much like his personality, I'm sure he would say he'd say nice effort, a nice try, a beautiful rendition. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for letting me listen. You know, he was very uh, self-effacing. You know, it was incredible that way. And uh, I hope he would like it. The other thing, I am playing only soprano. I, I felt that it felt more natural to me to play it straight horn. There's something about it, maybe with the Miles influence or something, but I felt that uh, uh, the straight soprano felt more comfortable to me. Now, not that the tenor felt uncomfortable, but the soprano fit like a glove. And then yeah, the final reason is that the soprano is difficult. It's much more difficult than the tenor or alto. And uh, to really get good at it, you got to give. you got to give to get. Well, I will tell you, I, I think the, uh, the music world and the people that uh, enjoy jazz music would say they're happy to know that you've chosen uh, soprano because you play it beautifully. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's a thing of beauty. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So just to jump off on a couple of other things, you're still involved with the Manhattan School of Music at this point in Berkeley? No, uh, Berkeley, I, I'm a visitor once a semester. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, I, I teach now at NYU. Ah, okay. Which is my alma mater. In the, NYU had an uptown campus. I was, so it's now I'm teaching at NYU, so it's kind of full circle. It is indeed. And, and what's ironic for me in looking at your... Uh, your history and biography is that here it is standing there that you have a degree in American history from NYU. W where did the ship go wrong here? <laughs> well, I'm not sure it was me. I think it was the curriculum. You know? I mean, I started out with all good intentions to be a classical a teacher, mainly. You know, I'll teach music. Well, anyway, NYU became, has become my home, my second home now, as far as teaching goes. I teach five saxophone players every other week. You have had a stunning career in your life. Uh, what, and, and certainly a remarkable educator, but what would you like your legacy to be? Well, I believe it's going to be education. Because that's where you make a real contribution. I mean, if, you, if you're not, this sounds like a little trite, but if you're not Coltrane or Mozart or Beethoven, then you should do something that is what, what they were about. You should leave something to the world that 
is akin to those people I mentioned, but in your own way. So I think teaching, that would be my legacy. I believe that's what it would be. And uh, again, unless you're a Coltrane, you really, <laughs> I owed it to myself to do something of value to the, uh, to the world. By the way, that's very uh, wonderful and admirable uh, for you to say this and talk about selflessness. Uh, you know, passing it on to other people is really what it's all about. At this point, is there anything on the uh, Liebman bucket list you'd like to share with us? Well, there's some projects happening, it seems, in the next few months. I still have to have a hip replacement, so I'll slow it down for a minute, although everybody says it's walk in the park. Well, we wish you all the best with the life ahead of you, and it seems as though there is a great deal of it yet to come. So between all of your education and uh, the performances that you do and recordings and so forth, what do you do in your spare time? Do you uh, have a hobby or do you hang out and do something else? Like, uh, I try to relax. You know, I wish I could go to movies. I haven't been to a movie in a long time. But I, in a way, when you're an artist and you're in the creative path, there is no time off. You're always on the stick. I mean, be it obvious or be it, because if you're not actively, you know, there's saxophone in my hand. I'm thinking about the chord on the piano or something that I need for this piece. And right now, it's the band, my, my band wrote a tune together for my birthday. Hmm. And it's called, it's right here, Obvious Complicity. I'm not sure about the title. I have to get into that. <laughs> complicity to do what? But uh, this tune I played through a couple of days ago, and it needs a, it's a great contribution. I love it. It needs a little bit of fixing. So the next time I have time, which is, I have to fix it. So you're not really ever free of responsibilities you have as an artist. Well, when you get ready to uh, put some polish on that, uh, send us a copy and uh, we'll feature it. Thank you for mentioning it. So uh, in uh, the brief uh, future ahead, any uh, performances of this uh, release, Selflessness, uh, on tap? Nothing formal. We did do two nights at Dizzy's Coca-Cola last weekend. And uh, that was great to play four sets you know, with some, a couple of repetitions. I never, I never did that. I played, not like a culture, I would play favorite things. If there was a, people at the bar, you had to play. The boss would say, hey, I know it's late, but you've got to do that. You know? So uh, we got four sets out of it, which were nice. But there's nothing specific. Well, I, I will tell you, Dave, this has been a, a pure pleasure and a treat for me to spend some time uh, chatting with you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Very good question. Appreciate your work that you put Hey, one last thing. Uh, if our listeners want to know more about you or what you're up to these days, how can they find out? The website is probably one of the thickest websites in the world. Um, everything's on there. Uh, I might say specifically what the part I like the most is ed under education, educational articles, which are my writings about these, all different things, so Steve Lacey, uh, how to play a soprano saxophone, whatever, you know. So davidlieben.com, and then under its instructional educational articles. Well, Mr. Liebman, thank you so much for spending the time with us here on All That's Jazz. Thank you, sir. I look forward to hearing it. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with saxophonist, composer, and jazz educator, Dave Liebman. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, 
Apple Podcast and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.